I want to invite you to imagine with me right now your favorite baked good. I'm not sure what that is. Just imagine right now and imagine who's making your favorite baked good. Just imagine right now with me. If you've been around a while, you know my favorite baked good, so you know what I'm thinking right now. I'm thinking cinnamon roll. I don't know what you're thinking, but man, do I love me some cinnamon rolls. Imagine that best thing you've ever put in your mouth that's baked. Imagine that person making it. Uh, I'm going to say it's my wife because that's going to that's gonna go a long way in the second service when she hears this. <laughs> and uh, maybe it's your granny, grandma. I don't know who that is for you. Imagine them making that dough and sticking it in the oven. So when this happens in, in my house, I love to go and just put my face, turn the light on in the oven and put my face, like my, my eyes can see and I can feel the warmth of that oven, like right there. But uh, I want you to imagine, I, just, just do this with me, all right? Now, I, I know maybe you ate a donut when you came in. I hope you did because I'm not trying to make you hungry. I'm, try, I'm trying to, we need to get into the, the, the context of what we're going to dive into today, and this is going to help us, okay? Um, imagine, like, put yourself there. Like, what does that feel like? And what does that smell like? Mmm. Yeah. Baked goodness. And we're watching this as it, what happens as you're watching it? This baked good begins to rise. And you can see, like, I can see that cinnamon roll right now, all 21 minutes in that oven, and I'm just sitting in front of it. I don't always do this, but I have been known to do this, to just sit and watch those cinnamon rolls just do their thing. You take them out and put some frosting on top, and golly, have a little bit of coffee with it, nothing better. Not keto-friendly, but it is, there is nothing better. And so as we're watching that best baked good you've had in your life rise, will you ask the question with me, what makes that baked good rise? It's the yeast. Three things can make it rise, actually. A combination of three things these days is baking powder, baking soda, and yeast, right? It's a combination of those things in the flour, well, Scripture has much to say about yeast. It's phrased the leaven. Today we read in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, we're going to get to this concept of the leaven of the Pharisees. And so as we get ready to read this, grab your Bible. I promise we'll always use it and go ahead and bring it. If you don't have a copy of this, let me know. We will get you a copy of God's Word. And so as you turn there, know that this idea of leaven or yeast, is used all throughout the Old and the New Testament. And almost every single time it is used, it is used in the concept that there's this symbolic, that yeast is symbolic of, of sin, is symbolic of something that ba- that's bad, that gets into a dough. And all it takes is just, if you've ever made dough, I'm not, I'm not a baker, but if you've ever made it, how much yeast does it take to cause that to rise? I mean, it's such a small amount of yeast 
that affects all of these, these uh, all of the chemical composition of everything that, that happens once you start baking, right? And so it just takes a little bit. And so this idea of yeast is used from very early on in the Old, Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, this idea that something gets in that you don't want. And so when we take of the Lord's Supper, as we did last week, uh, we, it's, which is symbolic of the body that was the body of Christ that was broken for us and the blood of Christ that was poured out for us for the forgiveness of our sins. We did that last week. It's symbolic of that. We take that wafer first. And that wafer is, like nowadays, it's cardboard almost. Like, but it, it, it's, a, it's unleavened bread. And why is that? That's what the Jews would have been partaking when they took of the Passover meal. They had to have unleavened bread. As a matter of fact, you could never offer leavened bread on the altar of God in the Old Testament. It was considered unclean. And so there's this idea of unleavened bread is clean and leavened bread is unclean. And so that makes sense, everybody with me? All right. And so these days in our world, one of two things rises. And you can see it as you think about it. Look all around us. Either unbelief rises or belief rises. There's certainly areas in all over the news and all around us that we see like this this darkness of unbelief that seems to grow. And that's the idea of the yeast that, that just keeps going just a little bit. It keeps going. But let us recognize that the opposite happens too. Did you know that one time within Scripture, Jesus used the idea of yeast as the kingdom of God. Just one time, Jesus told a parable, and he says the kingdom of God is like a lady that, that, that makes some bread and puts yeast, and just a little bit of yeast, a little bit of, of good, a little bit of the kingdom, and it spreads like crazy. And so Jesus, in that moment, you know what he did? He redeemed the concept of yeast. Jesus does that. That's what he does. He loves to redeem. And so in the midst of all of this negativity that's all around us and this unfaith, realize this, that the opposite is happening too. Just as we shared today, like God is working, he's on his throne, and he is doing a good work. He continues to work among us. So there's this rising of unfaith. But man, if we open our eyes and if we participate in it, there's this rising of faith all around us. And it begs the question as we read Mark chapter 8, which one of those is rising in our hearts? Unbelief or belief? Let's read Mark chapter 8. Beginning in verse 1. During the days, another large crowd gathered. And then, since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion, as he does. We've talked about this quite a bit. That's the word splank, not splanknizomai is the actual word there. This idea that he was moved in the inner part of his gut. Like he was bent over for compassion over these people. And they have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. When was the last time you went three days without something to eat. I can't remember a time where I ever went three days without something to eat. And a little side note here that I think is really important. Um, Jesus is um, about to feed these people. And he had already done that just uh, a few chapters ago. 
Remember that? He fed 5,000 people. He had taken just a handful of loaves of fish. How many? He had two fish, and then he gave some loaves. It was five, right? Five loaves, two fish, and he had fed 5,000 men, so a lot more people than that. Like, Jesus blessed it. Man, it multiplied. We're going to get to that in a little bit. So that had already happened, but, but who, who, where were they when he did that? They were on the, the western part of the Sea of Galilee. That's the Israel side. So who was he feeding? He was feeding God's chosen people, the Israelites. So here, where is he at? He's on the other side, and now there are these people who are the Gentiles, and now they're following, like leaning into who Jesus is, and now Jesus is going about, to, he's about to feed them as well. And so he says this, if I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way. They haven't eaten in three days because some of them have come a long distance, and his disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? And he asked the question, how many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. And he told the crowd to sit down on the ground. And when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. And they did so. And they had a few small fish as well. And he gave thanks to them also and told the disciples to distribute them. And the people ate. And here's that word, same word as before when he fed the 5,000. They were satisfied. And we say, like, this is, they were physically satisfied. They were hungry. But certainly there's a spiritual context that, that Jesus completes and he satisfies. And, af- and afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. And after he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dal. Manutha, which I think is on, from my studies, they don't know exactly where that is, but there's been some archaeological evidence that is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. So they traveled from the east side, right, up to the north side at this point. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread. Duh. That is not ironic. That's just like, it's got to be the irony of ironies, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. They had all these baskets full, and they had one, lo- one loaf that they, bought. Be care- they brought. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast. There's, there it is. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And they discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. And so here's what they were thinking. They were like, oh, man. He's really getting on to us for not bringing the bread. And you can just see, just kind of imagine with me what's happening uh, within their context. These, these disciples, you have Matthew looking over at Peter like, man, why didn't you bring the bread, man? Or, and all these, they're like kicking each other like, we should have brought the bread, right? And aware of this discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? And ears but fear but failed to hear. And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for five thousand? How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? And they answered, Seven. And he said to them, Do you still not understand? So you have the disciples walking with Jesus. And now they've seen Jesus feed 5,000. They've seen men, 4,000 here. And they, they're still, I think a nice way to say it, uh, they're hard-headed and slow learners. 
and, and we talked about this, like I'm one too, and so like I understand I'm a disciple just like that, like I, I tend to learn slowly and I need to be reminded a lot, and so we have this passage of scripture where Jesus has compassion on the people again. He feeds the 4,000. And then you have the yeast, the Pharisees coming in and say, show me some stuff, right? And Jesus refuses to. And then you have this, the disciples just not getting it. In verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. And to test him, they ask him for a sign from heaven. I missed this, so i got to go back and read it. So here the Pharisees are. They came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they ask him for a sign from heaven. And he sighed deeply. There that sigh is again. One day I'm going to run for political office, and here's going to be my phrase. Be like Jesus, sigh like Jesus. I love that. Like He sighed. He sighed differently last time because it was a sigh like, man, I, I just can't stand these people's hurt and this brokenness. But here it really is, it is again a sigh of frustration with these religious leaders, with these Pharisees. And so he sighs deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Which begs the question, who was this generation? Well, as we go on, just the next story, we know that, that Jesus is going to give another sign. He's going to continue to heal. So we've got to go back and answer this question. What generation of people is Jesus talking about? Well, it's the, it's the people who lack faith. It's the people who are looking for the wrong thing. And so truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them and got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. And so at that point, he's going back down. He's on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee, and he's back down um, and goes into, uh, back into Galilee, the, the side of Israel, for the rest of the passage. And so I think a lot of people, I don't know if you've all, there's lots of movies. There's, we watched recently a movie. I can't think of the name of it. It's, uh, it'll come to me. Hold on. Oh, National Treasure. National, y'all ever seen that movie? And, and there's like this treasure hunt, and you have to have a, someone that can understand ciphers. Like, they, they've got to be able to read all these languages and understand, like, there's this puzzle that has to be broken, and, and someone has got to understand the cipher to understand it all. Did you know that God's Word is not like that? Yeah. Uh, God's Word can be readily understood, and God gives us His Spirit to help us understand His Word, but... We have to understand it in context. And to understand this passage today and, and to quickly apply it to our lives, we have to get three things. One is the context of leaven and unleavened. We've already talked about that. The other is the number 12. What does the number 12 mean? Because that's how many basketfuls were left, right? That's what the disciples said. How many are left? 12. Well, uh, that, that meant a variety of things to, to, to the Israelites, but... It meant, uh, it was considered, 12 was considered the perfect number for them. It, it was also the number of the tribes of Israel, right? That's not a coincidence. So that's the, the perfect number. But it also symbolized God's power and God's authority and was a foundation for all governing rules, this idea of 12. And so it also could mean complete or, or full. And then you got the second number we have is seven. And seven literally means full or complete. If they wanted to say something was full, they would have seven things. And so here's 11, here's 12, and here is seven. 
And it goes back to what we talked about the past few weeks. Jesus had a mission. Remember, there was creation. We talked about it last week. Four, four aspects of history. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And last week, we, we talked about that Jesus was the Messiah, and he came to do that third part. His mission was to redeem and to make us complete and right again with God. And so those numbers that Jesus is saying, how many were left over? Twelve. How many number? How many were left over? Seven. They point back to Jesus came to fulfill and complete the mission of God. And that is in contrast, what Jesus had come to do, that was in contrast here to the leaven of the Pharisees, which was what? What was Jesus' issue with the Pharisees all along? It was all about religion and outward things. And it was not about the heart. Jesus says, look, it's about the heart. It's not about something on the outside. It's about something on the inside. The Pharisees were, were looking at the outside and getting all the, all the law right and, and, and looking right on the outside. And then you have Jesus saying, no, it's, it's not. It's a matter of the heart. And if the heart is right, it will transform what is happening on the outside. So you have Jesus here, and he's teaching truth. And that truth is pure. And, and that stands in stark contrast to the Pharisees who are teaching untrue things which are unclean, that they are tainted, and their gospel missed the mark. Why does it miss the mark? Because their gospel missed Jesus. And that's what we have to understand as we get two things out of this passage or as we're wrestling with it. So in the midst of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is false and which is empty, there is Jesus, the bread of life, whose truth is true and full and, le and brings hope and brings resurrection. Two realities happening within our passage today, just very simply. The first is this. It's the first fill in their blank. We find it in verse 11. We find it with the, with the Pharisees. We find it in verse 17 and 18 with his disciples, Jesus' dis disciples, there was great confusion. In our passage today, there was great confusion. President Harry Truman enjoyed telling a story about a man who was hit in the head so hard that it knocked him out. And his family saw him, took him to the hospital, and, and they decided that he was, he was dead. And so they called the undertaker to come and get him. And the undertaker did. The undertaker came. He was obliged to come and get him. And he went to the hospital and took this guy to the funeral home. And that gentleman woke up the next day. And as he woke up, he was so extremely confused. He looked around and he blinked to himself. And he thought to himself, if I'm alive, why am I in, a why am I in this box that's cushioned? And if I'm dead, why do I have to go to the bathroom? True story, true story. See, he woke up confused, but Harry Truman also said this. He said, if you can't convince them, then confuse them. If you can't convince them, then confuse them. I want you to know that confusion is not of God. It's very important. There's confusion. The Pharisees misunderstand who Jesus is and what's going on. His disciples still, even though they've been walking with Jesus and seeing him doing all these incredible things, they are still confused about what Jesus is doing and his capacity to do all that he's doing. 
confusion is not of God. 1 Peter 5.8, you probably heard it. It says, be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion, a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I want you to know the primary way that Satan devours people is disbelief and, and confusion. He loves to stir confusion, and even among God's people. But confusion is not of God. First Corinthians 14, Paul says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So what does confusion look like? It looks like the, the Pharisees not getting it, saying, hey, do these things and you'll be right with God. And, and here's Jesus saying, well, no, that's, that's just not true. The purpose of the law was, was to point you to a relationship toward God, not just doing all the things to earn a relationship toward God. And I've come to fix that. I've come to, to remedy that. And then you have this, uh, this fighting and the bickering among the disciples, like, why didn't you pick up the bread? Why didn't you get the bread? Why didn't you just? Do you know the enemy just loves that among God's people? He loves to see God's people fighting with one another. He loves to see God's people not in unity with one another. It's Psalm 133.1, right? How beautiful it is for brothers to walk together in unity. The unity of the body of Christ is so important. And the enemy wants to stir in disunity and confusion among the body of Christ. There's definitely in this passage a, a, a confusion of holding on to the old ways. They've been thinking like this for centuries. And it's really difficult for them to get themselves out of that tradition. And there's an inability to see Jesus for who he really is. They, they heard it. And they even saw it with their own eyes. Man, I wish I could. I wish I could have been there for that feeding of the, of the 4,000 and the 5,000 and all these healings and the way Jesus was teaching. But they had right in front of them, they're still confused. So there was, there was confusion. But then the second thing is there was great compassion. We find this characteristic of Jesus over and over. In the midst of all of the disbelief, in the midst of all of, of the misunderstanding and the confusion, here Jesus stands in front of them just having compassion over them. And we know, looking at the passage, it's very clear Jesus had compassion on the thousands because they were hungry. And so what happened? He fed them. Why? Because he's, he, is, he is compassionate. But also the Pharisees. I, I think that, that Jesus certainly could have acted differently, but he had compassion on them. He actually, he, was, he said, this generation will not see a sign. That's the confusion. But then, then what happened? He left them. I mean, he could have smote them right there. He could have struck them down. He could have called down angels. Like, these people are a wretched people. Uh, they are unclean. They are, le- they, they are unleavened, and boom. But no, Jesus didn't. He went on. He had compassion on them. And even in the hard-headedness of Jesus' disciples, Jesus took a moment like a good dad would do. And he sees this moment of confusion, and he turns it into a teaching moment. You see the compassion there. And Jesus gives them these numbers, reminds them that the first feeding of 5,000 people, there were five loaves of bread, right, with 12 basketfuls left over. And then here Jesus reminds them that there were 4,000 fed with seven loaves of bread with seven basketfuls at the end. Did you do the math? Do you see the math there? That doesn't make sense. Jesus did more with less the first time than he did the second time. 
And so what is Jesus teaching them, his disciples in that moment? He's saying, look, I don't fit in the box. I don't go by worldly measures. I don't fit into an equation. I am bigger than anything you can comprehend. And you see what I did then, and I am still that same. And he's saying, I am with you. I'm compassionate. I am with you. And I feel like he said that to me this week as I wrestle with this passage that it's so often, <laughs> I, I, if I put myself in the disciples' shoes, if, if you were walking with Jesus and you saw what they saw, would you be worried about going hungry? Now, you would say right now, no, right? Of course not, right? But we do. But I do. I feel like, like, what's going to happen? This world is out of control. What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to us? But listen, here Jesus is, his compassionate self, and he's reminding us, look, I don't fit into a box. I can do anything, and I will do everything on behalf of my people, and I will be with you, and I am with you. So Jesus loves his disciples, and he's frustrated with them. Yes, of course, as he gets frustrated with us. But it seems to me, as we look at this passage, it's very clear that, that Jesus' intent was not for them to have bread. It was for them to have faith. It was not for them to have bread, although he cares. He's feeding the thousands, right? It's not that he doesn't care. He wants us to have our, our physical needs met. But the bigger goal is that we would be a people of faith. Kind of reminds us of that Gentile lady. Remember the Syrophoenician mom who had a daughter who was demon-possessed? And, and she's a Gentile, so she can't even come to the table, right? And she says, even, I don't need to go at the table, even if I had a crumb, right? She had the faith that is needed. Follow-up question to the last question about, like, this, if we were with Jesus, would, what would, how would we respond? What if Jesus only had one piece of bread? How many people could he feed? How many? As many as he wanted to and everyone. That's why Jesus said in John chapter four, uh, John chapter six, I am the bread of life. Like he has come to be the, the fulfillment for everyone, to feed everyone for the entire world for all time. It's uh, almost like for us, we have to remind ourselves, there's this more more that they were looking for, the Pharisees were looking for, more, more miracles and more things. And for us, it might be more whatever, more homes, more cars, more whatever. And then you have this, uh, if we put this other stuff here, right? Let's do a math equation. Other stuff here, there's like a less than sign. And here is Jesus. We have to be reminded again today. As the disciples were reminded that day that all of this stuff, it's not that it's unimportant, but Jesus is over here and he is greater. He is bigger. We have to make this abundantly clear in the midst of our confusion today in this world. Jesus is sufficient. He is more 
than sufficient. And so you have the enemy casting the leaven of unbelief over us. But then through our word today, you have Jesus casting the leaven of belief. Something that we can stand on that will always be true. Which begs the question as the band comes up. and We sing a song of response. Which one of those will you receive? The leaven of unbelief or the leaven of belief? Which one will you practice? Which one is rising today in your heart? As I asked my question, that question of myself, which one of those is rising in my heart? Today, my prayer is that faith will rise. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are not a God of confusion. Today, I pray that your word has helped us make clear some things about who you are. And how compassionate you are and your presence among us, even, even when we are confused and even when we lack faith, you are with us, reminding us that you are faithful, reminding us that you still are on your throne, reminding us that you still move. And Jesus, we celebrate that today. Thank you for moving in our midst. Thank you for moving through our students. Thank you for moving through our adults all around the world. But Jesus, today, I pray that we would trust you more in this moment. That we would stand more on you because of what you've done through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.